0: Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. This week, on the fourth and final episode of our short series on Chicago history, we're discussing one of the worst maritime disasters in U.S. history, the capsizing of the SS Eastland in the Chicago River in 1915. July 24th, 1915 was the date of the annual company picnic for employees of the Hawthorne Works, a massive factory complex that was part of the Western Electric Company, located in Cicero, Illinois, a western suburb of Chicago. By 1915, the annual picnic had grown so popular that the company chartered five ships to take over 7,000 passengers from Chicago to Washington Park on the shores of Michigan City, Indiana, for what was planned as a full day of food, swimming, baseball, bowling, dancing, and even a roller coaster. A ticket for the 34-nautical-mile trip was $1 for an adult the equivalent of about $30 today. Early on the morning of Saturday, July 24th, around 5,000 Western Electric employees and their families began to gather near the Clark Street Bridge on the Chicago River. The SS Eastland was first in line to depart since it had run late the previous year, despite its moniker as the Speed Queen of the Great Lakes. The eager passengers, dressed in their Sunday best, started to board the Eastland around 6.30 in the morning to prepare for the planned 7.30 departure. The Eastland had a reputation as a tippy ship. In July of 1904, it had nearly capsized after departing South Haven, Michigan, with around 3,000 passengers aboard. The ship's owners made various modifications, including reducing the capacity, removing the cabins, and repairing the hull. But in August 1906, the ship listed again, leading to complaints being filed. The ship was sold twice in the next few years, with new owners making more modifications including lowering the smokestacks. But in July 1912, the Eastland again experienced a severe listing, this time a 25-degree list while passengers were boarding in Cleveland. So on the morning of July 24th, when the Eastland began to list to starboard, then straighten, then list to port, the passengers may have thought, It was just typical for the Eastland. Around 7 o'clock a.m., with the Eastland again righted, passengers began to stream onto the Eastland more quickly, at a rate of 50 per minute. By 7.05, there were over 1,000 passengers on board. And as the crew started the engines, there was again a light list to port. By 7.10, the ship was at capacity with 2,500 passengers aboard. By 7.10, the ship was at capacity, with 2,500 passengers aboard, and the crew prepared to bring in the gangplank. But by 7.16, the listing to port was more severe, perhaps up to 15 degrees. The engineer ordered the starboard ballast tanks opened and with the Eastland momentarily righted, the gangplank was finally drawn in. Although the listing to port continued, the crew prepared to depart, even as water began to enter the ship. Around 7.25, the Eastland started to move away from the wharf, and the passengers started to move toward the port side of the ship. As the listing to port continued and increased to 30 degrees, some of the passengers were asked to move back to starboard. But by that point, it was difficult to do so because of the angle of the floors. By 728, the listing was so extreme, at 45 degrees, that things were crashing over, a piano slid across the promenade deck. Whatever fun passengers had been having with the tipping up to this point, now they knew that something was wrong, and they began to panic. Passengers poured into the staircases, and some jumped off the sides. By 7.30, the Eastland had completely capsized in the Chicago River, just 19 feet from the wharf. The rolling had happened so quickly that Captain Harry Pedersen had never ordered evacuation. None of the life jackets were handed out, and none of the lifeboats were launched. Ironically, the lifeboats were one of the causes of the rolling. After the 1912 sinking of the Titanic, there was a push to equip all ships with sufficient lifeboats. In March 1915, President Woodrow Wilson signed into law the La Follette Seamen's Act, which, among other provisions, required ships to provide lifeboats. That could accommodate at least 75% of the passengers. As the law was debated, the general manager of the Detroit and Cleveland Navigation Company warned that the extra weight of the lifeboats on upper decks could be dangerous in Great Lakes vessels with shallow drafts. He was ignored. The Eastland, to comply with the law, Now carried 11 lifeboats and 37 life rafts, far more than it was designed to carry. The Chicago Fire and Police Departments, the Chicago Department of Health, and the U.S. Coast Guard, along with hundreds of volunteers, immediately leapt into action after the Eastland capsized. But before long, the rescue mission became a recovery mission as the bodies of passengers who had been trapped underwater were pulled to the surface. The 2nd Regiment Armory nearby was used as a temporary morgue, as families streamed in to identify their loved ones over the next few days. And there were so many loved ones to identify. 844 people died in the Eastland disaster, 75% of whom were under the age of 25. It was far deadlier than the Chicago Fire, which killed around 300 people. On August 14, 1915, the Eastland was raised from the river. It was sold to the Illinois Naval Reserve and converted into a gunboat named the USS Wilmette, which was used as a training vessel. Until it was decommissioned in 1945 and eventually sold for scraps. Joining me now to help us understand more about the tragic Eastland disaster are Ted and Barb Wackolds, who co-founded the Eastland Disaster Historical Society, along with Barb's sister Susan Decker and their mother Jean Decker. Barb and Susan's grandmother. Borghild's Amelia Anstad, who went by Bobby, was just 13 years old when she, along with her sister Solvig, mother Marianne, and uncle Olaf, survived the Eastland disaster. Hi, Barb. Hi, Ted. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Hi Callie. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having us.
0: Yes. So I am always excited to learn about Chicago history. And this is a piece of Chicago history that I just discovered a couple of years ago and was amazed by. So I am thrilled to be learning more. So I wonder if we could start Barb by by just asking you a little bit about your family connection to this piece of Chicago history how you came to know about it and learn about it.
1: Well, my grandmother was 13 years old when she was on the ship with her family. Um, Her little sister was nine and they were with their mother and their mother's brother who worked for Western Electric. So when I was a young girl, along with my sister, my grandmother, who was always just so bubbly and just so up all the time, she always told these wonderful stories about when she was a young girl And, you know, we loved listening to all of her stories. And we do especially remember when we were young, she told us about this big ship that she was on when she was a young girl. And so as young girls ourselves, we were very fascinated with that. And of course, she refrained from all of the gory details that uh, she witnessed as a young girl was incredibly traumatic. But she did tell us about how she had to tread water. She was in between decks and was there with her family for many hours and they they clung on to things. And Uncle Olaf was trying to save other people, all the while making sure that my grandma and her little family were, were safe. But I remember my grandma, as a very young girl, learned how to swim. And there's so many people way back when, you know, they didn't take swimming lessons at the YMCA like we all did and like our kids do. But anyway, she learned how to swim on a summer vacation with family, friends. And she always told my sister and I, you know, how important it is to know how to swim. Because again, when she was a young girl, she had to tread water. She had to try and do what she could. Anyway, so she helped to teach us how to swim up in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, when we were, we would summer up there. And, and my own father, her son uh, was a wonderful swimmer. So anyway, again, my sister Sue and I grew up hearing these stories about the Eastland. And we always loved when she would tell us that story. And she remembered in later years, we always said, Nana, tell us again about when you were on that big ship, you know. So that you know, in a nutshell, that's how I know about it. And, as I went to school in later years, I never heard about it in history class. They never talked about it. And uh, so I knew about it because of my family.
0: Ted, I know that you have done more of the looking into the the history and and what happened. Can you talk some about the kinds of sources beyond just you know the the family story the the way we know about what happened? what sorts of things we still have to go look at and, and can read about so that, that we can reconstruct what happened.
2: Sure. So our most authoritative resource is the work that Professor George Hilton did back in the, well, he published his book in 1995, Eastland Legacy of the Titanic. Uh, but that was after 20 years of research uh, by himself and a, and a crew of grad students that he had. And it's really a marvelous work. It's it's really a, a full, you know, thirty-six volume encyclopedia condensed down into to one uh, book. Uh, and what's re- really fascinating about it is he did all this research well before the advent of the internet. Uh, but his his work by far and away is is authoritative as far as uh, the amount of digging that he did through all the various archives. So that's, that's clearly something that we rely on uh, regularly, but uh, we also fill in a lot of the blanks from our own research through various newspapers, various archives. We've been very blessed through the years at really having a, a great uh, personal professional relationship with a lot of uh, organizations and agencies, uh, mostly in the Chicago area. Uh, that have opened up their doors to access their information. For example, the Cook County Coroner's Office. They have a a ledger that they established exclusively for the Easton disaster. You can imagine uh, the coroner's office being inundated with over 800 fatalities in a single day. Uh, They wound up opening up a a separate ledger to, to maintain the information for those victims. So they you know, this is back in the early 2000s, uh, probably 2000-2001. They opened up their office, invited us down there. They made uh, full-size copies of these large, oversized ledgers of all their information that they had captured uh, back in 1915. Uh, Western Electric, uh, we've had great success working with them. Uh, they've opened up their archives. One of their executives uh, actually had quite a few documents and ledgers uh, that he had personally saved uh, when the Hawthorne Works facility out in Cicero closed down. He saved a lot of the, the records cause he knew they were historic um, and then he donated those to us. So that was a, a wealth of information too. And of course we also have Red Cross records, which are fabulous as far as providing uh, firsthand, you know, information about uh, the victims and, and their families. And uh, we also have thousands, literally thousands of families all across the country and even across the the globe, Canada, uh, Europe, have contacted us and provided us with just some wonderful historic information about their family, you know, just like Barb described previously here about her family. The names, the stories, uh, Uh, photos—we've got thousands of families that have provided that information, and it's—I guess that's the benefit through the years as we look back of being a um, a very focused not-for-profit organization. You know, there's lots of great uh, institutions that preserve and share history; they're all doing marvelous jobs. Um, We've had a, a very niche focus that allows people to reach out to us and and we've become this one-stop shop, I guess I would call it, for acquiring and preserving and sharing information about what is Chicago's greatest loss of life tragedy.
0: So I I wonder if either of you have uh, thoughts on why it's not better remembered, why it hasn't been better remembered. As you mentioned, this is the biggest one day loss of life in Chicago much bigger loss of life than the Chicago fire, which everybody remembers and talks about. Why is it that something that happened right downtown in Chicago must have been front page news in the city isn't better remembered even within the city?
1: We have people ask us this all the time, and it really is. We wonder, too. And you mentioned, you know, you were sure it was front front page news in the city. It, It certainly was. And it also made headlines throughout the world at that time. World War One was ensuing. It was, uh, you know, it was a bad time in the world. But we, we still don't really know why Chicago kind of swept it under the rug. You know, I was talking before about when I was in school and never learned about the Eastland, but we all, of course, everybody has learned about the Chicago fire. I'm going to really let Ted take this, too, because we, I don't think any of us have a real answer as to why. It, it, it sort of became so obscure.
2: Well, we don't really have uh, answers uh, that are based on fact, uh, but we do have a lot of, I guess, hypotheses, including the fact, unlike the Titanic, the Eastland passengers, there was no one that was rich or famous uh, that was on board. Uh, they were very hardworking, blue collar, first and second generation immigrants, mostly from Europe that had names that people couldn't spell or pronounce. And, and you know, they're just, there, there wasn't anyone of notoriety. There wasn't anything glamorous about the passengers. And there also wasn't anything glamorous about the tragedy itself. Not that anyone is looking for, for glamour in, in any accident. But, you know, the Titanic hit an iceberg out in the middle of the ocean. The Lusitania was sunk by a torpedo. The Eastland was just, and I use, you know, quotes around the word just, uh, the Eastland was just docked, partially docked at the wharf, uh, downtown Chicago, in the Chicago River on a a reasonably nice summer day, very tranquil waters of the Chicago River. uh, It just rolled over. Um, So there really isn't anything that you can romanticize and write, you know, these fantastic movies, uh, feature films about. But there's another aspect that we've talked about through the years, too, and that is that how we deal with grief today uh, was very different back in 1915. And each of these families really didn't have the resources available to them that we do now to process through. And and it's not just even the the families that lost one or more of their members of their family. You know, even Barb's family that survived was a horrific day for them. They probably knew people that did perish, so so the grief extended well beyond uh, the families that lost people. If you think about all the the rescuers and heroes that came to the scene too, and and dove into the river and and tried to help and pulled bodies out, it it you know we talk about uh, post traumatic stress disorder um, and how it affects individuals today. There were thousands of people that probably walked away from that day with some level of PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, another it, and part of it, too, is the, the tragedy kind of got stretched out through several days. That It happened in a matter of minutes, yet uh, they had to centralize operations for the morgue at one facility, um, they moved over 800 bodies into this facility in, the, in a summer day that you know, it wasn't air conditioned. And so now you have thousands of people walking in and out, up and down rows of hundreds of bodies, trying to identify one or more of their family members. So even if you were at home in the suburbs, like out in Cicero, and weren't actually involved in the tragedy itself, uh, chances are good you had to go to the this horrific uh, morgue situation and and um, you know walk through that and and you just think about the personal devastation and grief that that people came away with. Uh, so the widespread devastation, the widespread PTSD across an entire community is is probably a big part of what caused people to just bury the tragedy and, and why would you want to talk about something like that afterward? Uh, so, you know, there, there's a lot of these different things. Barb mentioned World War One, and the, the fact that there wasn't anyone rich or famous. There's just a lot of different things that play into that.
1: I was also going to mention that there are so many people now who do know about it but there are still so many people who do not who even live in the city who have contacted sure. us. We've had teachers contact us through the years to say, "Oh my gosh, I was doing some research on Chicago history and I I read about the Eastland and I'm embarrassed to say that I never knew about this and I'm going to be teaching my students about this." We've had young students contact us through the years, the past 25 years. A lot of even junior high age, but high schoolers too, mostly maybe junior high age doing their history fairs and things like that. And they were going to be doing their their uh, project on the Eastland. And these are young kids who, which is wonderful because they're learning about it at a young age. Uh, teachers now hopefully are teaching more about this. One interesting thing is down in the city, uh, when you take an architectural tour, we've heard that some of the docents talk about the Eastland as they're going by the site, and some do not. And I just do not understand why some don't. Uh, some people have said that, well, they they feel like it's going to freak out the, the passengers, and yet I think, well, why would it freak them out? This is history. Uh, so for those people who do learn about it when they come to Chicago and they're on one of these tours, they're learning about Chicago's history, and again, you know the worst catastrophe on the Great Lakes. So anyway, it's just very interesting.
2: Yeah, and there's actually you know Barb's comments remind me of of another aspect of of what you can look at. So the question of blame, uh, which comes up regularly, especially with with tragedies, through the the years, immediately following the tragedy, The newspapers and general society blamed the passengers. The the reports that surfaced initially said the ship rolled over due to the sudden rush of passengers to the riverside of the ship, which if you pull the court transcripts and uh, read through the information from eyewitnesses that testified under oath and had no affiliation with any of the ships or or the companies that own the ships, they were unbiased, in other words, Uh, all of them testified that no, there wasn't a sudden rush of passengers, uh, which is logical, because the ship was so crowded, you could hardly move about, let alone have a a sudden movement of, of a large number of passengers. So that was all refuted in the courts uh, under oath, yet the newspapers picked up the first reports, and that's what kind of carried through the the days following the tragedy is that it was the passengers. And then you had the criminal trial that happened within less than a year after the tragedy, and they found no one guilty. You know there were there were several defendants that were charged with various crimes. Uh, But in the end, the court found all of them not guilty. So you had the newspapers reporting that it was the passengers that caused the ship to roll over. You had the courts kind of validating that by charging people, uh, but finding them all not guilty. So decades later, over a century later, you've got a a tragedy that, that was blamed on the passengers. So...
1: But then with the civil trial, it was the chief engineer who was found guilty, but he had already passed away. They they said he was kind of the the scapegoat for that. Anyway, I know there's lots of details pertaining to that. Yeah,
0: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, I think they say when a a car crashes, something went wrong, but when a plane crashes, everything went wrong. This is one of those situations like Titanic where it feels like Everything went wrong. That, that this isn't a, a single thing that that happened that caused this tragedy. So, can we talk a little bit about these compounding factors that made it such a, a tragic event?
2: Yeah. So that's a real interesting question for us, Kelly, because you know we've we're we're in our twenty fifth year now as a not for profit organization, and as we first started out, uh, we didn't have the information and and knowledge that we do have today. Uh, So, when we first started out, when we talk about what caused the ship to roll over, uh, we did our best, I guess is what I would say. We basically took a shotgun approach, which, which is we listed, I think, seven or eight different items that kind of all bled into this. They had just put about a dozen tons of, of new lifeboats on the uppermost part of the ship. They had recently added uh, several dozen tons of concrete to, again, the upper part of the ship. As Barb mentioned, they had pumped out the ballast uh, that morning, which, again, made it less stable. They crammed 2,500 more than 2,500 people on board the ship. We took the shotgun approach and said okay here is what caused the tragedy there's there's these seven or eight things that all just happened to come together that morning we've always said it wasn't a matter of if it would happen it was always a matter of when and it just happened to be that July 24th 1915 is is when all those things kind of came together so that was our our way of approaching the the cause of the tragedy but through the years, uh, with the additional research that we've done, the additional information that we've acquired, and also we've worked uh, a fair amount with the United States Coast Guard, who has a lot more uh, nautical uh, maritime expertise uh, than we'll ever profess to have. So through the years, we've we've changed our approach now and and what we, look at when we talk about the cause of the tragedy is that really it was a matter of the fact that uh, the ship was unstable and top-heavy. It was not designed as it should have been, as it turns out, Um, but most unfortunate for all the people that were involved in, in 1915, no one through the 12 years of service leading up to the tragedy No one ever performed what is called a stability test for ships. Here you had a a ship that was licensed to carry 2,500 passengers, and not once in its 12-year history had anyone ever raised their, their hand and said, hey, wait a minute, is this ship stable in the water or not? Actually, I should should retract that a little bit. There there were a few people, including a naval architect in 1913, sent a letter to the government department that handled the uh, steamship inspections and said, basically, if you don't address the situation with the Eastland, it's going to roll over. Uh, so here you have a, a very credible source, uh, a naval architect that was a well aware of the instability, uh, top heaviness with the Eastland, trying to you know you know raise draw some attention to it. Uh, but his memo, his words were uh, ignored basically. So anyway, so to come back to what I was saying, we now really kind of point it's not pointing a finger it's it's trying to say here's what we believe to be the case if the ship had been inspected at any point in time uh, especially leading up to the days uh, preceding the tragedy if the us coast guard an agency that now is responsible for all inspections on united states waters if they were involved, they would have required an inspection when it was first launched. And every single time that it had modifications made to it, they they will not allow a, a ship on the water, whether it's the lakes, the oceans, uh, rivers. They will not license a vessel unless it has passed their rigorous inspection, which includes, most importantly, out of everything, a stability test. So in, in 1915 and, and all the years prior to that, uh, through all the different modifications that took an already unstable and top heavy ship and made it even more unstable and top heavy, never once had anyone performed a a, a stability test on it. So if you've got a ship that has stability built into it, and has passed the inspection of the U.S. Coast Guard, then all these other elements of the shotgun that I mentioned earlier, the fact that they put more lifeboats on it, the fact that they put concrete on it, the fact that they put 2,500 people on it, the fact that it had a very woefully inadequate ballast system, all of these other possibilities here, bottom line, they... Ships should be able to stay upright even when those things happen, if, if the ship is stable and is licensed to be stable. So I guess the short answer to that is we now talk about a, basically a single concept, which is an unstable and top-heavy ship. If the United States Coast Guard had been involved, the Eastern disaster would not have happened. And proof of that, by the way, is the fact that at least in the United States, there has not been a repeat incident uh, that, that parallels the Eastland disaster. There has not been a, a ship that just rolled over. So that's you know, a testament to the, the awesome work that the, uh, the U.S. Coast Guard is doing for the safety of the public for the last 100 plus years.
1: And the ship was also known as a cranky ship. They called it cranky. Uh, It had a lot of close calls when it was out on the the different lakes, you know, some where, you know, some people really thought, oh, my gosh, is it going to, you know, tip over? Uh, Thank goodness this didn't happen out on the lake Mm -hmm. that morning, you know, when it was on its when it would have been on its way to Michigan City, Indiana for that big picnic. I mean, can you imagine if that had happened? It would have sunk like the Titanic out uh, on Lake Michigan. But yeah, it was known as a cranky ship and had a lot of close calls.
2: But again, no stability tests through all of that.
0: I imagine that a lot of people who are familiar with Chicago might be having trouble picturing just how this could be so deadly. So anyone who's been along the Chicago River and there's a gorgeous like river walk there now where this is, it's not a very wide river at that point. It's not a very deep river at that point. And so it's really hard to sort of wrap your mind around, okay, it tips over. Why couldn't everyone just get out? And so I I wonder, Barb, if you could talk a little bit about your grandmother's experience, because I think that's instructive in helping people understand why people couldn't just get out of the ship.
1: Sure, sure. Well, they were very fortunate because they were on the side of the ship that when it rolled over, they were on the top side. Okay, I remember my grandmother saying she could see through the portholes. They were not on the upper deck. Uh, they were in a, on a mid-deck, and that's why they were trapped for many hours. They were basically, you know, mid-deck in a inner compartment, basically. Some of the people who were on that top deck as it rolled over, some people were able to start crawling over the rail. You've seen a lot of pictures, I'm sure, of the ship on its side where people are on the side of the ship most, those people never even got wet. So my family, again, was fortunate enough that the the ship did not sink any uh, further into the river. You know, when you look at the pictures, you see it's it's half under, half above. So water obviously did still come into the ship, and they were fortunate enough that it did not go over their heads. So now all those other people who were on that on on the river side of the sh- you know of the ship, those people, so many of them, they said, were trampled and, and suffocated. Because can you imagine all those people just on top of each other, uh, ice boxes going over? There was, you know, pian- everything was just on top of people. People were running, you know, for the staircases, and many got trampled and suffocated there before they even drowned. Uh, so I think for my family, again, I wouldn't be here today. Most likely if she had been on the other side of the ship, my father obviously would not have been here. My sister and I, Ted's and my children would not be here had she not survived, of course. So again, I think they were just so fortunate and that was fate and they were where they needed to be. And many, many hours they were lifted to safety by ropes through the portholes. So for for all those other people on that other side of the ship, it was, you know, just so horrific. And because it turned over so fast, obviously no lifeboats were launched that I don't even think that would have been of any help. No life jackets, you know, they were still in those big bins. So, you know, we we count our blessings that our family uh, was where they were.
2: And Mm we just add to to Barb's comments, we only know of Literally a handful of people from historic record, from like the newspapers or from a uh, research or from the families, only a handful of people that survived that were on the river side of the ship. As it rolled over, you know, all the people, all the debris just rained down on top of the people on that side. The water came rushing in. It, it was uh, just a horrible situation to be in. Um, and of course, the other thing that it's hard for maybe people to think about today uh, because we don't experience this at all today. But back in 1915, for a spectacular Saturday excursion and picnic, everyone, women, uh, men, children, everyone was uh, dressed in their formal attire. The men had suits and ties on. Uh, the women had uh, the petticoats, the long dresses laced up boots so if you can imagine over 2500 people in a very tight quarters of the eastland being thrown into a fight for your life situation and you're dressed with all those heavy clothes that that don't help uh, the survival rates whatsoever mm-hmm. just would have been a, a horrible situation to find yourself in obviously
0: can we talk a little bit about the, the heroes of that day? I know there were uh, a few people who were either seeing what had happened from the shore or people who were on the boat who, who were able to, to help out. Could you talk maybe about one or two of those stories uh, about the people that were really helpful?
1: One of the people who uh, was a hero was my uncle Olaf, who was on the ship, and he was the employee of Western Electric. And he, a big, strong Norwegian guy, was also a fantastic swimmer. And uh, he was awarded a coroner star for saving 27 lives. So it was amazing to think. And what my grandma said, too, is that while he was trying to help other people, he made sure that his little family was okay, holding on to things and so forth. But he was doing what he could right there in that area where they were uh, in between decks. So that is a, a very special thing to think that he saved so many lives in all of that chaos with his family.
2: I guess the question is, how much time do we have? because uh, uh, there are so many different stories that that we could uh, jump into. the The one place to start, though, is a uh, a woman by the name of Anna Minert, who uh, was part of the Eastland disaster. She survived. Um, but later she said, "You know, there were a million heroes that day. I don't think anyone knows their names." Mm-hmm. which is, you know, really, in a very few words, sums up. Uh, the situation. Most of the people that did help out that day, um, we may not know who was involved and and what they did. Uh, the newspapers carried you know quite a few accounts, maybe a dozen or more. Uh, we've heard from a lot of families through the years as well, and and I hate to to jump in and and cite a few because you cite a few and then that means we're ignoring all the others, right? But the the one that for me, at least, is just resonates with me as, as being something that I, I think I would be challenged myself to put myself in his shoes. It was uh, a young uh, 18-year-old by the name of Reggie Bowles. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's well-known throughout the history of the Eastland disaster because his story was captured. His family has been a big part of it through the last 25 years as well in, in helping supplement what the newspapers carried. Uh, But he was a young young man that had no involvement with Western Electric, no involvement with the excursion or picnic, uh, but he was a fantastic swimmer. He became known as the human frog uh, after this uh, situation, but he was outside of, on the outskirts of Chicago, heard about what had happened. And because he knew that he could get into the river and, and help because of his Expertise in in swimming, he drove down to scooter. Yeah, drove down on his on his motorbike on his scooter, down to the wharf and proceeded to jump into the river multiple times, repeatedly. And and it's just a scene that I can't imagine. He wasn't a paid diver. Uh, As you look at photos from the Easton disaster, you'll see the hard helmet uh, divers in many of the photos. They were the professionals that were brought in to help recover the, the victims. But Reggie basically took most of his clothes off and just started jumping in as, as a complete volunteer. And, and you've got this ship that's about the length of a football field that's on its side in the filthy, pitch-black Chicago River, boxes, debris, bodies, everywhere scattered throughout a a ship you have no idea as you're jumping in and going into the the bowels of the ship where you are you don't have flashlights you don't have a mask but he did this repeatedly dozens of times hoping to find someone that he could uh, save but in the end it was uh, more a a recovery operation uh, pulling victims bodies from from the ship But just the the fact that someone would do that, jumping in the river alone, even today, now that it's been cleaned up, that would be difficult to do because it's a life or death situation you're putting yourself into. Uh, But back then with the condition of the river and the fact that he wasn't just jumping in the river, he was going into the the hull of the Eastland, the overturned Eastland, it's just a scene that's hard to, to wrap your head around. There were firemen that, that came to the scene uh, immediately, uh, the, the policemen, there were people that jumped into passing uh, rowboats and so forth that that helped out. And um, I, I, like I said, I, I know there's there literally are thousands of, of people that did help out that day. Even the people after the fact uh, that helped out at the centralized morgue, we consider them heroes, uh, people that dealt the the nurses and doctors that dealt with the the people that were sick, the people that were mourning, the, the morticians, the undertakers, just so many different people from so many different perspectives that helped out. And, and I guess we look at them all being on the same plane. They're all they're all heroes because they all, you know, volunteered and and helped out as best they could, regardless of what the situation was.
0: I wonder if you could tell people how they can get involved in the Historical Society or learn more.
2: Oh, sure. Thank you for that. So we do have a website. They can visit eastlanddisaster.org. And uh, we do things throughout the year. Uh, We do special events. We have a a mailing list uh, that we send information out to keep people informed. We have a wonderful Facebook Page and community. Uh, there's over r- roughly, I believe, 2,500 people that are plugged in, many of whom have a direct personal connection to the tragedy. So there's a lot of sharing that goes on there. We do presentations throughout uh, this area, and now we're we're starting to do presentations remotely, uh, thanks to uh, the availability of of Zoom and Google Meet. So we just, you know, we. We started out uh, with the idea to develop a, a community of people that were interested in the history of the tragedy. It was a, a history, as you know, and, and that's kind of the premise for why we're even on this uh, podcast with you, Kelly, is it's such a an unknown part of history. We are fairly comfortable in saying that if we hadn't started our efforts back in 1998, when we did, that the history of the tragedy would have declined even further from uh, the public consciousness. But, you know, through not just our efforts, we had a lot of fantastic partners through the years that have helped us share the history of the tragedy literally with uh, several million people. You know, the, the history uh, we feel uh, comfortable will be, you know, known and, and part of, of, the community for generations to come.
0: Well, thank you so much for all the work that you do on this. And, and thank you for speaking with me. I'm, I'm really glad to have gotten to know this part of the, the history. And certainly, I'll never be able to go on the river without thinking
1: about it now. Well, thank you, Kelly.
2: And thank you for carrying this story, because that's a big part of, of helping us uh, mm-hmm. continue sharing and preserving the history of Chicago's greatest loss of life tragedy.
0: Thanks for listening to Unsung History. Please subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app. You can find the sources used for this episode in a full episode transcript at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions, corrections, praise, or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and tell everyone you know. Bye! MSW